Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning. By show of hands, how many of you have ever had a garage sale? A few of you have had a garage sale. Now, how many of you have had a moving sale? Moving sale is kind of like a garage sale on steroids. You're getting rid of everything. And we recently had a moving sale. And what that means is that we're moving. Actually, what it means is that we've actually already moved. Now, don't get upset. Don't get nervous. We didn't move too far away. We moved about five miles away, but I know it seems like a, a long distance from, for people to live in Bellevue. But we decided at our age that it's time to kind of scale back, declutter, downsize, so to speak, and that means getting a smaller house. But the problem with getting a smaller house, it means that you've got less storage, too, right? And when you have a lot of stuff, it means you've got to get rid of some stuff, and we had a lot of stuff. Now, some of you, I know a few people, were here way back in 2004, I think it was 2004, when Debbie and I first arrived, and we didn't arrive with just one U-Haul, no, we arrived with two U-Hauls, right? Two U-Hauls, but that's because we're emerging two families, which doubled not only our kids, but all of our stuff. And as a side note, I remember standing there, you know, and a, a lot of people came up, and they came up on Highland Place, and they came out to help us move our stuff, and I said, you know, I said to somebody, I said, you know, I really appreciate it. It's really nice to see all the church members come up and help us to move our stuff in. And he says to me, he said, you know what? They really didn't want to help you to move. They didn't come to help you move. They just wanted to see what kind of stuff you had. That's all. They're right there. Anyway. So, you know, we had to, you had, we had to downsize. And so we began to think about this. About four months ago, we began to think, well, you know, the market's good, and maybe it's time to really take seriously the idea of moving and downside. And so we started the, the process, the, the painful process of, 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 of packing up our stuff. We packed up, and I'm very strategic in my move, packed up in three piles. You had the, the stuff we were going to box and definitely keep that was going to a new place. You had the stuff that was just worthless, we were going to throw it in the trash. But then we had the stuff that was going to go into the neighborhood moving sale. Actually, it was just our moving sale, but it looked like a neighborhood moving sale because we had a lot of stuff. Anyway, we, we put it in there, and it was just, if you've been through that, it's been a painful process trying to figure out, you know, what do you keep and what do you get rid of? It's, it's horrible. You know, I've had stuff that I've carried around for 30, even 40 years. You know, like, for example, you know, I, I, still, I still have my, my, my Navy utility coats, paint stain. This is from 1974. Carry this around, move after move after move, you know. But even though it's over 40 years old, you know, I cannot, I cannot think about parting with it, especially given the fact that it still fits like a glove. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then how do you get rid of something like this? How do you get rid of a Spider-Man that you found, a four-foot Spider-Man that you found on the side of the road one day? I just, it was hard parting with it, but I did part with it. Never get rid of that. And you got all the other stuff. You got the, the glassware, the dishware, the photographs, tons of photographs. You got the clothes, you got the cups and the, uh, the mugs, you got, you got the things like the, uh, uh, the yearbooks, you've got uh, holiday decorations. 
you know, pills, blankets, lidded, all this kind of stuff. And then if you have kids, you got all their stuff too, right? You got all their stuff. You got the toys when they were little. The American Girl dolls, the Barbies, and all that kind of stuff. You got the games that they'd like to play. The Game Boys, the Game Girls, whatever you call it. You got all the games there, right? And you got the trophies and every stinking award that the kid has won since they were little. And then, of course, you got this wicked, awful thing called Beanie Babies. Do you know what a Beanie Baby is? If you have a kid who was born in, I think, the 80s or the 90s, you probably got some Beanie Babies, right? This is a tub full of about 100 Beanie Babies, and there's more. Beanie Babies, you know? I, you know, you know parents didn't relate to Beanie Babies. Remember when Beanie Babies first came out? And you had to get your kid the Beanie Baby. Every time, it was, it was an addiction. Every time the kids, uh, they come out with a new Beanie Baby, you felt as a parent, to be a good parent, you had to run out and buy a stinking Beanie Baby. And so my kids, well, Austin and... And Natalie have basically every Beanie Baby that was ever made. But of course, they don't want anything to do with them now. They don't want to take them with them. But I always believe that these Beanie Babies are going to be worth something someday. Millions of dollars. So I carry them from place to place to place. It's a sickness. <laughs> but the reality is, you know, it's tough to get rid of stuff. But it's, it's also very depressing because the stuff... Carries a lot of very special memories, which means it really hurts when you see your stuff kind of spread out through the whole lawn, or in our case, the next door garages on, on Maryland Avenue. The stuff spread out all over. This is your life. This is your history. You know, this is our, our daughter Julie, our daughter-in-law Julie, who, who decided who she was going to help us out. And she was going to go through and label everything and price everything before the, the vultures swarmed in and decided to pick through her stuff. And they just pick through your stuff. And they don't appreciate the stuff that you've got as much, much as you do. You know, we put a dollar on something and they haggle over it. You know, and you're thinking, I bought this thing for 50 bucks five years ago, and now I can't even get a buck for it. And even then, when you're willing to go 50 cents for it, whatever, they say, ah, no thanks, I don't want it. And so what happens, you end up with a lot of stuff left over. At least half of the stuff that we put in the movie sale. And so then you got to decide, do I trash it? You know, do I, do I somehow put it on like a uh, buy nothing Bellevue site or, or Craigslist or something like that? Or I just call the vets and have them haul it away to Red, White, White, and Blue Store, which is basically what we did, a combination of all of those things. But as you know, if you've ever moved, you know, and got rid of a lot of stuff, you know that it can be a very, very freeing experience. It's a very freeing experience. But again, very sad because you know, as you still got a lot of stuff left in boxes, Boxes will probably remain full until the next time you move, amen? <laughs> and you say, well, Chuck, this is funny stuff, but, you know, it's my best material. Anyway, this is good stuff, but what's it got to do with that? What's the point? What's it got to do with today's sermon? What it has to do with today's sermon is that Americans, even Christian Americans, their particular attitude about stuff and wealth and possessions, as we'll find out as we read in today's passage, and again, their attitude, Americans' attitudes are quite different than the attitudes of the first century Christians. So we've been going through this series called The Spirit-Filled Church. Twelve marks of a spirit-filled community. And again, we've been reminding you that that first church, when the first church started at Pentecost Sunday, the church became filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And we know that amazing things were happening because of that. You know, people, miracles were happening, people were getting healed, people were getting saved, that sort of thing. And when we study, if we look through the book of Acts, we see this in very specific marks that characterized the church that day. And that if we want to be a, a spirit-filled church, we would try to, you know, take on some of those marks. And so far we've looked at four particular characteristics. We looked and saw that the, the original church, the first century church, was a praying church. We saw that the first century church was a gospel-centered church. In fact, the, the first century church was kicked off by a powerful gospel message of Peter. We also saw that the early church was a biblical church. They followed the apostles' teaching. They listened to the apostles. They talked about the Old Testament. They talked about Jesus. And we also, last week, that the first century church was a church that liked the fellowship, that liked to eat together and enjoy meals because the meals were the glue that held that community together. Anyway, we saw this really, in the, most of this, in the first, uh, like, five chapters in, in the book of Acts, in the second chapter of Acts. You know, actually, it was, if you want to follow along, it was Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. I'm going to read through this quickly again. My being baby down. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miracles, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Some of the possessions of goods they gave to anyone as he had needed. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Again, a very good snapshot, a very good picture of the first century church, what was going on there. And what we want to do today is look at the fact that the church, the first century church, really was a generous church. And we see this again in, in, in Acts 2, 44 to 45, where it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had a need. So really the main point today is that the spirit-filled church of the first century was indeed a generous church. And again, if we want to be like that spirit-filled church, we will be a church full of generous people, and thus becoming a generous church. But it's easy to read these passages and, and kind of get, you know, just try to figure out, you know, how do I take those passages? You know, does it, does it mean that we have to give everything? Does it, you know, does it, have, does it mean that, uh, uh, that we all have to, have, have to be kind of like socialism or something like that? You know, how, and, and how did they become so generous or why were they so generous? Or really more importantly, again, is, is, is how does it affect us today? Does this apply to us today? And now when you're reading those passages, you know, generally speaking, that uh, people tend to view these passages in one extreme or the other. One extreme is that they would say, yes, this is a blueprint for the church. This is a, a blueprint exactly how the church should operate. And the other people would say, you know what, that's first century stuff doesn't apply at all to us today. But they're both, you know, you know we know that just like in politics, you know, any extreme is, is basically wrong. It goes true, the same thing is true for religion. You know, and so the people that say that this is the blueprint for all time, you know, they're wrong. Because again, it was a very contextual thing. You know, a refresher of what was going on at the time. They were in the midst of the Jewish uh, festival of Passover. 
probably had a million people coming into this city of Jerusalem. And we know by last week or a couple weeks ago that at least 3,000 people got saved. That's the number of people that, that we know got saved. And so a lot of those people that got saved were formerly Jews from other areas, and a lot of them decided to stay in Jerusalem. You know, stay in Jerusalem so they could learn more about this new religion they, they heard Christianity, but really a lot of them were just, they couldn't go back home because their families wouldn't accept them back in. And so these people were basically outcasts. They were outcasts. They were religious and social and economic outcasts. And so you had a situation where you had a lot of homeless people, you know, and unemployed people. You had a, really a, a, an emergency in the city that required action. And really it was the church who responded. The church wanted to survive. It had to do something about it. So again, all the people contributed to make sure that everyone was taken care of. And the church should be the first one to respond. In fact, you know, if we ever have a, a, a national crisis or even a local crisis, the church should be the one responding, not just FEMA, not to the Red Cross, but the church. But even in saying that, this passage does not imply that we are all supposed to liquidate our assets. And we're supposed to own nothing. But it does imply a timeless truth that the, that the attitude, that we should adopt the attitude of the first century church toward wealth and possessions. Which means that, you know, the, for the people that said it doesn't apply, they're absolutely wrong. It does apply. Again, not that we have to liquidate, but we have to have their same attitude. For people to say that it doesn't apply today is to ignore a bulk of the teaching in the Bible, including the teachings of Jesus, because Jesus taught, I think up to 15% of his, his words were, were about attitudes or views towards wealth and possession. He spent more time talking about, I guess, money. I, I, I can't verify, but apparently he spent more time talking about money and wealth than he talked about spent talking about heaven and hell. And he said, well, why do we do that? I think because Jesus knew something we didn't know. He knew that there was a real connection between, you know, our, our stuff, really our willingness to keep hold, hold on or to let go of our stuff and our the spiritual condition of our heart. He knew that. He knew that our stuff, our money, our wealth, and possessions can become this major obstacle to our relationship with God. And there's a lot of passages that speak of this, but one of them is in particular that you're all probably, many of you are familiar with is the story of the, the rich young man, this rich young man who, who knew the Bible well or knew the Old Testament, the law very well, very religious, upright guy, but also a guy who had a lot of stuff, a lot of wealth. Very wealthy young man. But he also had some doubts. He had some spiritual doubts. He wanted to he wasn't sure, with all the good things that he did, that whether or not he was going to be able to enter into the pearly gates, enter into heaven. So when he, when he encountered Jesus, he went up to Jesus, and he said to him, he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, you know, straight, straightforward, he said, Jesus replied, if you want to enter eternal life, just obey the commandments. And then he went on and asked him, which ones? He said, you know, the ones honor your father, father and mother, you know, don't steal, don't lie, you know, don't give false testimony, those type of things. And basically, the young guy said, well, I've been doing that all my life. But the young man made a mistake. He didn't leave well enough alone. He went and asked Jesus the question. He says, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? And what did Jesus say? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
See, Jesus knew the heart of man. He knew that the, the, the young man had turned his wealth into some sort of a god. And until he was ready to take, dethrone the, 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 the god of wealth, the wealth god, he's never going to be able to put God up on the throne and probably never going to be able to follow Jesus. And he knew that. He knew that deep in his heart and, and it depressed him. And even depressed him of, of the thought of actually doing that, of giving up that stuff, really made him sad. He says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Again, this was an obstacle between the, the man and his relationship with God. And you contrast that story with the story of a guy named Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus, what we see in Zacchaeus is we see that a young man who was willing to give up all the stuff, and because he was willing to give up all the stuff, actually salvation came to his house. You know, Zacchaeus, you don't know the story, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. It wasn't just a tax collector, but it was a chief tax collector, which means he had probably a lot of money. But it also means that he probably wasn't very popular because he took advantage of the poor people, extorted money from them. But somehow, you know, he heard about Jesus and was interested in Jesus. He decided one day, he heard that Jesus was coming to town, so he decided to, to join the crowd, to, 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 to follow Jesus, to come alongside Jesus. And as he got close to Jesus, he had a hard time seeing because it says that he was a, a short guy. He couldn't, he couldn't see, you know, through the crowd. He was a little man. You know, kind of like me, probably about five foot six or so. Anyway, I'm a little shorter. <laughs> light things up a little. Anyway, he was a little man. He couldn't see, so what did he do? He got up into a sycamore tree. So he could get a good view of Jesus as he came down the road. And we read that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And at this point, Zacchaeus right thinking, you know, Wow, Jesus is inviting, he wants me to invite him into my home. And at some point, something convicted him, and he just, you know, I don't know if he had a conversion, or what, we don't know what the experience was, but he decided to get out of the tree and invite Jesus to his home. And all the other people probably followed along, and we find that the people began to murmur, thinking, you know, well, well, Jesus is going to the home of a sinner. But the Zacchaeus that spoke up is he wanted to show the people, and he wanted to show Jesus that his heart really had been changed. His heart really had been convicted. And so we read, so we read when it says that, look, where he says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And at that point, you know, Jesus didn't just pat him on the back and say, you know, good job. He didn't even ask him, you know, well, you need to give all your possessions. But what he did say is today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to the house. Now this is, you know, easy to imply this, but I don't think Jesus was, was implying to imply this. It's easy to imply that somehow there's a connection between how much stuff you're willing to give up and salvation. I'm not implying that. I don't think Jesus was implying that. But what it's implying is that there's a lot of, there's, it's, it's easy, it's easy to have an obstacle, the wealth to become an obstacle between you and your relationship with God. And these stories of Zacchaeus and the, the young rulers, they're not isolated stories. Really, as we see, as, a, as we look through Acts, we see as the church began to expand, the church began to grow. There's all sorts of stories like this. 
Stories that demonstrate that people were willing to put God above material things, above money, and lots of money. In fact, there's a story back in Acts 19, you know, when, when Paul was in traveling through Ephesus, you know, the Holy Spirit was really at work traveling through Ephesus with him, and a lot of people were just being converted all over the place, including a, a group of former magicians or magicians and, and people who dabbled in the occult. And Ephesus was basically an evil city where you had people dabbling in all sorts of things. And so we read that a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. As a side note, I read that a drachma actually means, the underlying word is actually has the same meaning as, as the idea of grasping, which really is an appropriate word then for money. But 50,000 drachmas, what is that? I was reading that was the equivalent of 50,000 days of wages. And in today's money, anywhere from three to six million dollars. The bottom line, a lot of money. Now, if that was going to happen today, you know, uh, you know if, if, if this would happen today, uh, you know, they might burn their books, but I imagine, again, to be honest, that the people, Melzi and myself, would say, okay, well, maybe these books have some value. Maybe I could make it, put them on eBay or Craigslist or something, and at least get a few bucks out of it. But no, they just wanted to get them out of their life because they represented a bad part of their life. And the reality is that a lot of people become Christians and they still hang on to some of the junk from their past life. Stuff that they got to be willing to get rid of. Anyway, so these few, you know, these stories demonstrate that generosity wasn't just the thing of Jesus or, or even the Old Testament or even of, a, of, of the early church or the, the latter church. But really generosity was a characteristic of the spirit-filled church. So again, a spirit-filled church is a generous church. But if we think about it, there is a, if we're honest with ourselves, there's kind of a gap between where the church is today and maybe where the church was in the first century in regard to generosity. And I started to evaluate that and think, well, why, why is that? And I think the simplest reason is that we've become, again, a, a very materialistic culture, consumer-oriented culture. You know, I... If you don't believe me, I mean, just go back to that original, original opening illustration. You know, we tend to just get caught up again in the, in the sin of, of accumulation too much, materialism. And I was thinking, well, maybe I need to give a bunch of statistics to, to confirm or whatever what I'm saying is true, you know, about materialism. You know, including, I guess I read one where it said that apparently there's more people that visit the Mall of America in Minnesota then visit Disney World and the Grand Canyon combined in a year. You know, as again, it says we are a very materialistic culture. But if you still don't believe it, if you still need some convincing, then I would say just go home and open your closets. Look in your closets and see all the stuff you got. Go in your basement, feel the stuff you got. Go in your attics and see all the stuff you got. Go in your front porch. And see all your stuff that got. Go in garages and see all your stuff you got. Which, you know, should demonstrate that we are a nation of hoarders. At least borderline hoarders, including myself. And so the question becomes again, you know, well, if this is where we're at and where we want to be is the first church, like the first church, how do we get there? How do we bridge that gap? 
And I started thinking of dozens and dozens of things you can do to bridge that gap, and I realized I just don't have enough time left in the sermon to do this. And if you really want to explore that in depth, I suggest you take the financial peace class that's coming up, I think, in the uh, early part of next year. Because you'll get some very practical ways. But what I decided is really I just want to key in on, on what basically three things that are required if you want to be a generous person or a generous church. The generosity requires the right mindset, the right skill set, and the right response to the gospel. The right mindset, the right skill set, and the right response to the gospel. The mindset is really quite easy. We should all know it. And we don't own anything. Nothing. God owns everything. The psalmist says it best when he says, The earth is the Lord, and everything in it, the world, and all will live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. That means he owns everything. Everything. The trees, the sky, the plants, you know, our clothes, our DVDs, our stuff, our collectibles, all that stuff. He's the one that owns it. Even our house. Everything about the fact that you never really own a house. That thing just, I don't know why it struck me, you, that somebody was in that house before you probably. Someone's going to be in the house after you. You're, you don't own that house. No one really owns a house. They're living in it, but they don't really own it. They don't live in it permanently. They can never really own a house forever because God, I never tell you that way, God owns every single thing. That means that we are simply just stewards. And I talked about stewards a few months ago. Steward is just somebody who manages the assets, the wealth of another person. And that's all we're doing. We're just stewards who are charged with managing the assets of God for a very brief, and I emphasize brief, moment of time. Because life is brief. You know, one of the passages I've been memorizing is Psalm 90. And in that passage, it's kind of a very sobering line that says, speaking of God, it says, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening, it is dry and withered. Brotherly of life, right? And so life is short, very short, and we just happen to be stewards. Just passing through, which means part of that mentality is that we need to have a pilgrim mentality. It means a pilgrim is someone that doesn't settle down, but just continues to travel on through life. And that's all we're doing is traveling on through life like pilgrims, going off to a, a better home. Yes, the kingdom of God begins right now, but the fullness of the kingdom will come down the road. But we don't want to mistake this earthly planet with our home. Because if we have that mindset, if we see, begin to see this as, as the destination, not just the, the road to the destination, you can see how easy it is to get caught up in accumulating stuff after stuff after stuff, buying stuff, storing stuff, you know, consuming stuff. Because you've got this materialistic mindset that you're going to see here forever, so I've got to build and build and build and store. And, and again, that's wrong because this is not our home. I love the first line of Psalm 90 where it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home, throughout all generations. Amen. God is your dwelling place. Amen. In God is where you live. Amen. That is your home. 
and you get that, and you begin to, once you grasp that simple mindset, then you begin to take a, a different perspective into things. You don't worry about accumulating, accumulating, and storing stuff up on this earth. You begin to think, well, how can I store stuff up in heaven? And in fact, to not, or to store things up on earth, is actually foolish, as Jesus seems to imply in, in Matthew, where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, I was reading this passage in the midst of a move. What <laughs> about conviction? My goodness. But it was funny because I, I came across another item, uh, some, some currency, but not American currency, foreign currency. Currency, you know, that had some, I had some Russian dollars and Russian coins and coins from Mexico and, and Italy and, and I think even China in there. And this, I collected stuff from past mission trips and, and whatever, just traveling. And some of it I collected intentionally, you know, as a souvenir, even though I think that's illegal to take money out of the country as a souvenir. But some of it, I just forgot to exchange it before I got back in the airplane. And but I realized and the funny thing is, I've been in this stuff, this stuff for over thirty years, and I keep moving it and moving and moving. But this coin in the current state is worth nothing. Maybe a little bit of money from the metal in it or whatever, but virtually worth nothing. So much worthless that if I was to walk to Coons today. And say, and buy a loaf of bread, or try to buy a loaf of bread, and a cart of milk, and pay with this. I said, get out of here. <laughs> Wouldn't they? Try it. You know? How can you buy a pack of gum with it? You know, and so it's again, it's a, what, what's crazy about it is that I, you know, as you know, it's worthless. I, I can't throw it away because it's money, right? You don't throw away money. Never throw away money. You know, we cling on to money. We can't, we can't throw away money. And besides, you know, I might someday travel to another country and use it. You know, so like that. Which is foolish because, again, as Jesus is saying here, do not store up things or treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break and steal. Because, again, the reality is that the stuff that we have is going to be destroyed like that. It's going to be destroyed. <laughs> it's going to be lost. It's going to be stolen. Or as we saw it moving out, it's going to have mildew on it. So much that you say, oh, I can't keep this thing anymore. Or the moths get in and eat away at, which I saw in my, I had a fly fishing vest. I opened it up. I thought, I'll keep this and move it to the next Full of holes. Moss got it. Do it away. So again, what he's saying is, is it doesn't make sense to keep this stuff because it's all going away. And even if you could design some sort of a celestial U-Haul and load up all the stuff when you die and take it up into heaven, that stuff would be about worthless as those coins are today, wouldn't it? But in the same sense, Jesus implies that if you were to somehow be able to take some of the stuff and convert it to some sort of a, a, a kingdom currency, the stuff, the value will probably outlive you. 
right? Now don't get me wrong again. Jesus is not saying you're not supposed to own anything. You're not supposed to have any stuff. He just said, don't let the stuff own you. Instead, you know, develop a strategy to ensure, to help ensure that some of that stuff does outlive you. Which basically gets me to the next idea that to be able to, to be a generous person, you also have to have a skill set, right? I know some, most of you people have some sort of a skill, and you get that skill by practice over and over. And the skill set that, that we're talking about with generosity is simply that, is generosity. But not just simply generosity, excellent generosity. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in Corinthians when he says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Excelling in something takes a lot of work. As a side note, this idea of grace of giving is interesting because the underlying word that we translate grace here is actually translated gift in other places. Which means that this idea of giving or generosity is actually a gift to the giver. Right? And we know this. That may, we've all heard the saying that, that it's better to give than receive. And this passage verifies it. It is better to give and receive. You know, I'm not, I don't want to boast about anything I was doing this last week, but I just decided to start giving stuff away randomly. And so I went on this Buy Nothing Bellevue buy site and started posting stuff. And it was cool to see, it was almost addicting to see how people seem to be blessed by just random acts of giving. You know, the, the, the lady who, I had a colon stove that Probably never go camping again. Put it on there, practically like him. She said, oh, thank you so much. My dad will just love this. Or he had a, had a bunch of miniature houses. that someone said, oh, this will go great on the train set that I'm building for my son. Or the, or the cups, the, the soup cups and the, and the soup bowls. Someone says, oh, I can use this now to entertain my family. Or the tub of wedding uh, bridesmaids' dresses. Like a dozen of them that somebody in Northgate took and said, I can use these. To give to a senior who cannot afford a dress for the prom. This is stuff that's been sitting in the attic, drawing dust, and all of a sudden giving it away. You know, it, it, it not only blessed somebody, it allowed me to practice the gift of generosity. And that's a wonderful thing. So wonderful that I think, you know, I might like to do it here right now and, and actually give you the opportunity to do that. These beanie babies, you know. <laughs> Anybody, the smile is, 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 is worth it, it has to turn about. Anybody know a little kid that might like a beanie baby? A little girl, little boy? Anybody? Really? Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody might get a Princess Die one and put it on eBay. Anybody else? Nobody knows a little girl. Little boy, you want? To, oh, you're just afraid to end up in your your spot. Right? <laughs> Anybody else? Come on, help me get rid of these. You can't find a little kid that will put a smile on their face. If that doesn't have true value, sorry. Instead, you're becoming a hoarder. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I gotta say. 
say for the next uh, service. I don't want to run out of this thing. These have been sitting in the attic for 30, 20 years. And look what they just did. They brought a laughter and a smile. Can you put a value on that? And that's not even excelling. That's just practicing the gift of giving. Again, to excel is really to be strategic in your giving. To excel is to do things, figure out what you, things you can do that will expand or contribute to the kingdom of God, to the Great Commission. We talk about the Great Commission every week. We are all about, again, going out, going into the world, and making disciples. And so we want to contribute to people and organizations that are about making disciples. And really, that's why the giving begins right here in the church. You know, I thought, well, maybe the trustees are going to want me to make a, a, you know, a sermon out of this, out of, out of tithing. I, don't, I, I could talk about tithing. I really don't want to, but all I want to say is, again, the giving to the kingdom of God begins right here in the church. You know, ideally, 10% of what you're taking in, and that's the minimum. Again, Jesus says, give it all. And so, again, it should start with your local church, but then it expands to other missionaries, other partnerships that are doing the kingdom of God. And even that, it can go beyond missionary organizations. There's some other nonprofits out there. Christians are not. Because a lot of non-Christian organizations don't even realize it. But what they're doing is reversing the effects of the fall. The fall screwed up a lot of things, didn't it? And so you have organizations out there that just understand that something's not right in the world. So they're trying to do something about it. They're trying to deal with the issue of homelessness. They're trying to deal with the, the, the drug addiction and opioid addictions. They're trying to deal with the, the, the issues of abuse and injustice. You know, they're trying to reverse the effects of the fall. They don't even know it. There's people there are trying to uh, prevent, you know, loss of, of, of babies. You know, they're trying to, there's people that are trying to just protect animals, unwanted animals. You know, an organization like uh, Animal Friends, there's no kill shelter. All those things, all those places are, again, just trying to negate the effects of the fall, and they don't even know it. Anyway, so you have a mindset, you have a skill set, and finally, you know, if you really want to be a generous person, you know, generosity is grounded in the proper response to the gospel. In other words, we give because of the one who gave us first. John 3, 16, for God's will of the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's will that he gave. He is the, he is the giver. And the interesting thing is he continues to give. We cannot outgive God. One of my favorite verses, John 1, 16. Because in the fullness of God's grace, we receive one blessing after another. We just got to look for them. In fact, I love how the message said it. I just read this the other day. The message says like this. We all live off his generous bounty. Gift after gift after gift. We do. We live off his generous bounty. And we keep it going when we give. Anyway, close. Again, Jesus is not saying, don't have any stuff. It's okay to have stuff. It's okay to enjoy stuff. Yeah, I think it's C.S. Lewis that talks about the, the stuff that we have is simply refreshments along the journey. We need refreshments. So we, we go crazy. So it's okay to enjoy some things, but we're just never to confuse them with home. Again, having the right mindset that 
that we own nothing and God owns everything and we are simply a steward. And when we understand that we're just managing God's asset, we come, we become people who don't just want to give randomly, but want to excel in giving. And when we really truly get good at it, we learn to excel in giving, we not only close the gap between the first century church and our church, we close the even larger gap between our heart and God. Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.